on episode 149 of the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast, our special guest is Don Helbig, a man of Cincinnati hockey history, and also the public relations manager for Kings Island and the former broadcasting voice of many Cincinnati hockey teams. We're talking the Queen City, great moments in local hockey history, one impressive record broken, and more on episode 149. Welcome to the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast with Lee W. Mowen. This is a weekly podcast covering all sports in Cincinnati and Dayton, Ohio. From Lima to the Ohio River and Northern Kentucky, from Eastern Indiana to Madison County and all points in between, this is your source of local Cincinnati and Dayton, Ohio sports. Visit the LeeWMowen.com slash podcasts to find your favorite podcasting platform. Music created with the Splash app. Time for another episode with your host, Lee W. Mowen. Here on episode 149 of the Cincinnati Dayton Sports Podcast, and we have Don Helbig as our special guest. Don, good afternoon, and how fares everything? You know, it's going as well as it could, you know, based on the, uh, you know, the situation we're all in. But, you know, you just take it day by day and uh, just do what you can. And a little bit of history. Don and I were uh, co-voices of the Cincinnati Thunder junior hockey team uh, when they made the move up to South Metro Sports. Don was the number one play-by-play guy. I was the number two. That's how uh, Don and I know each other. And, well, let, let's 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 not refer to yourself as number two, because I think, you know, if you asked a lot of the people that were listening to the games, they would have said you were the, the guy they would have probably preferred to listen to. Now, I mean, Don, <laughs> you've been a voice of so many hockey teams, and I hope to get to all of them that you've covered. So let's begin. Where are you from? You know, originally Deer Park, Ohio. So, um, you know, lived there until I was about five or six, then moved out into what's called Anderson Township. I grew up there and, you know, pretty much lived in Cincinnati most of my life. I've had a couple of, um, you know, times where I've moved away. Uh, I lived in Louisville, Kentucky in the late 80s and then came back to Cincinnati, started working with the Cincinnati Cyclones in 1990. And then, you know, I've lived in Greensboro, North Carolina, Albany, New York. Um, But each time that I've left and gone away, I always found my way back here to Cincinnati. I was about to ask, uh, when did you know you wanted to be? a broadcaster of hockey 1972 um, as Cincinnati swords the American Hockey League were playing at the Cincinnati Gardens went to my first game that year in November I was instantly hooked on the sport started listening to the games on the radio Ken Wilson uh, was the voice of the swords he went on to do the St. Louis Blues I did them for 20 years later on did the Phoenix Coyotes for a little bit Um, but uh, you know that's when I kind of thought that would be the thing to do because I knew you know being an American and you know just not growing up with a lot of ice around Cincinnati. I mean, there was no chance that I was going to ever, ever play hockey. That would have been the ideal dream to be a pro hockey player, but the next closest thing would have been uh, broadcasting. Uh, so that was kind of the goal, you know, to, to broadcast hockey. And I, I really wanted to do it in the American hockey league. Everybody wanted to do it in the NHL, but for me, um, the AHL was my introduction to hockey, you know, and I, I love that league. And I was fortunate enough to not only get to do it, uh, but get to do it for a team here in Cincinnati with the Cincinnati mighty ducks. And I know I definitely want to talk about the Mighty Ducks. I remember the radio commercials and Cincinnati radio when I was a kid and 
I mean, that those were some great teams at the Gardens. My next question is, how many teams were you the voice of? I did a little bit of color with the Cincinnati Cyclones. Um, it was we had Terry Ficarelli was the the voice of the team when I was working for them, um, and then uh, with the Carolina Monarchs did like some helped out with the weekly uh, radio show that they had. But in terms of the actual play by play voice, uh, it would have been the Cincinnati Mighty Ducks and the Albany River Rats. How did the Mighty Ducks and the River Rats situation come to be? Well, with the Cincinnati Mighty Ducks, I was working for the Carolina Monarchs. And in fact, there had been talk about, uh, you know, broadcasting the, the games the next year. But the Hartford Whalers moved to Greensboro and uh, the Monarchs got evicted from their lease at the Greensboro Coliseum. So I needed to go somewhere else. And I started looking around. And uh, around that same time, uh, the Baltimore uh, Bandits of the American Hockey League, they were looking for a new place uh, to go. Uh, the Cincinnati Cyclones had vacated Cincinnati Gardens. Uh, Gardens needed a tenant. Uh, so it all came to, came, uh, came together that way where um, the Baltimore franchise was purchased by the Gardens and uh, they had Anaheim as the NHL affiliate and took on the Mighty Ducks name. Uh, so, you know, it was an opportunity to come back home uh, and it was an opportunity to work with the Anaheim organization. I had, uh, met some of them, you know, the GM, Jack Ferrara and assistant GM, David McNabb, you know, they had would come to Greensboro when the, the bayonets would play. So I was able to, you know, know who, who I was going to be getting involved with. They seemed like really good people and it seemed like the right fit at the time. Wasn't the mighty ducks also affiliated with Detroit for a little bit? There was a, a time. Yeah. Um, there was three seasons where there was the, the dual affiliation in Detroit would send eight to 10, uh, players and it was uh, you know interesting to see because there was a different way of of you know what the two organizations were trying to you know do in terms of the type of players that they were drafting. Um, but the coaching staff, you know, they made it work. The first year was 1999. The 99-2000 season, Mo Mantha was the coach, and then the next two years with the Detroit Anaheim split, it was Mike Babcock uh, coaching the team and. You know, but it was just interesting working with both organizations and Detroit. You know, Ken Holland was the general manager. Uh, he's now in Edmonton. Jim Neal was the assistant GM. We would see him a lot. And he's now the GM in Dallas. And they were just, you know, just terrific people, you know, along with the Anaheim group. So it, it was, a, you know, it worked out because both organizations, you know, really worked well together. And a lot of times when you had those dual affiliations, you know, it didn't work out very well. I mean, that's going to be tough balancing, you know, not only just the one, but two of them as well, sending, you know, athletes to either the Red Wings or the Mighty Ducks at the time. Yeah. And there, you know, sometimes, you know, you get one or two call-ups by your parent club, you know, and that kind of hurts, but you could have, you know, there were situations where in one week, you know, Detroit needed to call up two guys due to injuries and Anaheim had to call up two guys. And now you're four guys short. So um, yeah, that kind of, you know, kept it from, from being as good as the team on paper, you know, looked like when you looked at the roster, it was like, this is going to be a really good team, but just because, you know, you were getting calls from two different teams and they were always, you know, obviously taking your best players, um, you know, so it was kind of hard to, to field a competitive team, but, you know, it was just one of those things, again, you know, there's some tremendous talent that came through, you know, both for Detroit, Yuri Fisher was one of the players that uh, came in from Detroit uh, he was one of the best players I ever saw, you know, in the American Hockey League. And, you know, from Anaheim, Ryan Getzloff, you know, came through at the end of uh, one of the seasons, joined the team for the playoffs. Yet Corey Perry, you know, came through. And, 
Uh, Andy McDonald was another player had a you know pretty long NHL career, so just a lot of talent. And uh, you know, it was just um, to me, it was always unbelievable how good the talent level was, not only on the Mighty Ducks, but just through the American Hockey League, and how few people in Cincinnati, number one, knew about it, or number two, appreciated it. And that's sad too, because the AHL's the top step before you get to the big show in the NHL. And just thinking that you were in such a historic hockey rink, and you get to see pretty much the stars of tomorrow in Cincinnati. That, that That's a little sad. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was the one thing that I always felt that was missed during the Mighty Ducks years was just, you know, having that opportunity to see a lot of these guys that were going to go on to not only play in the NHL, but play very well and become key players on their teams. You know, and you could see the visiting teams, you know, come in and there would be number one, you know, draft picks on the rosters and, uh, the talent level was phenomenal. And, you know, these players were 20, 21, 22. So, you know, they were just beginning their careers. And it was a great league for them to develop their talent, but an opportunity for fans to really, you know, watch these players before they went on to the NHL. But it it just seemed like here in Cincinnati they wanted, you know, they were more about, you know, having their fan favorites and players that were going to make their homes in Cincinnati. And I think some of them uh, – you know, they they kind of took it the wrong way that the players wanted to get out of Cincinnati because the idea was to get to the NHL. So it, it was just hard, you know, it was, it was hard to get the fans to really um, stay connected with the team because they were used to, with the Cincinnati Cyclones and the IHL, you know, they could retain players and have those players uh, year after year. And that's a shame too because the players don't necessarily want out of the town because they don't like Cincinnati. They, they want to play at the highest level possible and since now they do you know, they do and you know what's interesting about that is uh, and it's just straight to your point about Cincinnati being a great town a lot of these players that went on to play in the NHL you know they now live here in Cincinnati so I mean they've made it their home so uh, when they were here they loved it uh, they loved the people uh, but it just wasn't the NHL where they wanted to be there was a former NHLer that lived in Cincinnati. I don't know if he still does. Uh, Blaine Stockton. He was the head coach at Sycamore for a year or two. Yeah, Blaine Stockton still does live in Cincinnati. Um, keep in touch with Blaine. He was with the Cincinnati Stingers mm-hmm. back in the in the mid seventies when I was a uh, season ticket holder with the with the you know to the Stingers. And uh, he's one of only two players that ever scored fifty goals in both the WHA and the NHL. With Bobby Hall being. Uh, the other ones, so that's pretty good company there for Blaine. But uh, it was kind of you know neat for me. I was working for the Cincinnati Cyclones at the time, and uh, you know here I am as a you know a teenager watching the Stingers, and I have all these favorite players. And then you know 1991, you know Blaine comes in as an assistant coach, and, you know now I'm on bus trips and talking to the guy down the coach's office with them all the time. So that was kind of uh, uh, surreal for me to see these play. And then they would be a lot of the players were scouts too that I had watched. Uh, growing up so to see all these players from my childhood you know now working on the management side and then crossing paths with all of them uh, during my hockey days you know that was something that uh, was always interesting to me now the mighty ducks eventually took off and left the cincinnati gardens but i don't know how many people knew that there were plans to try to bring in another team in the rail raiders or rail riders one of the two yeah the rail raiders there was it was the same you know the franchise was owned by the gardens the, what happened with the mighty ducks is there were teams in Louisville and Lexington in the American Hockey League. As soon as they left the league, the Mighty Ducks were on the clock because the, sky, uh, the 
the travel costs just skyrocketed. Oh, yeah. uh, there were no longer the overnight trips or the, you know the day trips where you could leave at four o'clock, go play the game, you're back home by midnight. Uh, so that there were twelve of those trips a year between those two cities, and you know so the the cost of operation you know really skyrocketed at that point, and when you're flying to these different places, you know it's great for the players that you're flying, but from Anaheim's point of view, they were no longer able to have as much practice time as players and other cities were getting. If you look at uh, you know when there were cities like Albany and Lowell and Providence and Hartford and you know, Syracuse, um, all those cities with, you know, their road trips are like two hours, three hour road trips. You know, they can come back the next morning. They can be on the ice at 10 o'clock. Well, when you're leaving and you're playing in Milwaukee and you get back at, you know, five or 6 a.m. from a game, you can't practice at 10 o'clock. You know, you can't practice that day. So the practice time wasn't there. Uh, so being a development league, practice a huge part of that. And for Anaheim, uh, for hockey reasons, they needed to look to go somewhere else. And they found a deal in Portland, um, you know, and then when I was in Albany the next year, I, you know, I saw a lot of these players that had played in Cincinnati around the Portland team. And they all told me hockey wise, it was better for them because they got lots of rest, lots of practice time. Uh, but they really missed Cincinnati because the city wasn't as good, but that's why the mighty ducks left. And it was tough to get another NHL affiliate because the same situation was going to be there. Not enough practice time. So, you know, although there was interest, uh, we were trying to sell season tickets. We, we had taken deposits and we needed to have 2,000 season ticket holders. And, you know, we got to run that 1,500 range, but time ran out. You know, the NHL teams, the, the ones that were looking for different places to go, they had all, you know, committed elsewhere before we could commit to having that 2,000 season tickets that we needed financially uh, to make it work to where we could fly to more places and that, and it wasn't always going to be, you know, eight, six hour bus drives to, you know, rides to Milwaukee. So after the mighty ducks and the rail Raiders, what was your next stop? My next stop was the Albany Riverettes in the American hockey league. Um, I wanted to stay in the American league if I could, and I was fortunate to be able to do that. And I got into another situation where there was the dual affiliation. We had Colorado and we had, uh, the, um, Carolina hurricanes were there. So, um, you know, for me, it was kind of getting reacquainted with the people that booted me out of Greensboro with the whalers, you know, the former whalers there. Um, but the Carolina, you know, group was, uh, you know, another, you know, really first class organization. Jim Rutherford was the general manager. Uh, he's now in Pittsburgh. Uh, Tom Rowe was our head coach. He's now coaching over in Russia. And, uh, you know, we had some, some pretty good players, you know, come through and, uh, you know, I really enjoyed my year there. And media-wise, it was almost like an NHL setup for me, where we had three newspapers that covered the team uh, on a daily basis. So every practice, the beat writers were there. After the games, you know, the, the four TV stations would get the post-game interviews. And uh, so it was as close as you could get, and even better than a lot of NHL cities in terms of uh, how often the media was around the team. So I enjoyed it from that perspective. How did you wind up back to Cincinnati and wind up with the Cincinnati Thunder? I was working, you know, with the River Rats that, uh, you know, the, the Albany ownership also owned an arena football team. It was the Albany Conquest. So we were on a road trip and uh, it was in uh, Florida. And I'm sitting at the hotel, you know, down by the pool getting ready to, you know, head over to the, the arena for the game. And my phone rings and it's a guy named Bill Mefford who had uh, been the marketing 
PR manager at Kings Island in the 1980s for several years. And he was kind of doing some consulting work with them, you know, working two or three days a week. And he called me up and he just said, hey, just wanted to run something by you. There's a, um, an opening for a PR manager here. You know, would you be interested in, in talking to us about it? Well, I, you know, grown up going to Kings Island and had done a lot of uh, fun things on the roller coasters and that there in the 1980s. And mm-hmm. uh, I'd always, you know, outside of sports, you know, the other thing I always wanted to try was to be a, a PR person in the, you know, amusement theme park industry, you know. So, you know, I, I told Bill that, uh, you know, I'd certainly be interested in talking about it, you know. But it was one of those things for me. I liked what I was doing with the River Rats. I was treated really well there by both ownership, um, the staff and the fans, you know. So I wasn't in a hurry to go anywhere. My wife and daughter, you know, liked the city. My, da- my daughter absolutely loved her school, you know, that she was at. So there wasn't any urgency to get back to Cincinnati. But uh, I looked at it as a nothing ventured, nothing gained type of uh, scenario. So I came back into town. It was Father's Day weekend and uh, interviewed for the job. And a couple of days later, they called up and you know, said, we'd like to offer it to you. So, um, you know, having, ba- you know, with the with, with pro hockey, especially at the, the minor pro level, you know, there's there's not the best stability sometimes. So at the time, you know, with a, a wife and an 11-year-old daughter, you know, I knew that Kings Island wasn't going anywhere. You know, so it wasn't one of those things that we would keep moving every two or three years. So it was an opportunity to come back home, you know, do something that I had always kind of wanted to do. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, again, one of those things like hockey. I was fortunate enough to do it in my hometown. I was able to do what I wanted to do in the amusement theme park industry, also in my hometown. Now, this is something that I don't think a lot of people I get to interview have, but you're in the Guinness World Book of Records, and it does have to do with Kings Island. Uh, what was it about? It does. It's uh, It was riding a roller coaster, the racer at Kings Island. It was the first roller coaster I ever rode in 1972. My my cousin, I, I was afraid of him. And, uh, you know, my, my cousin, uh, it was the first year the park was open, and he said, come on, ride me. I'll, I'll give you 50 cents. Well, that was big money for me back then because that's what I got each week for taking out the trash and cutting my front yard of my house from my parents. So I was like, okay, 50 cents. Okay. I can buy a hot dog or something with that here. <laughs> so I, I rode it and just absolutely love the ride. So I ended up riding it like nine times, you know, that day, but, uh, um, 1981, I, you know, get a season pass to the park. I, at this time I'm working as a novelty vendor at uh, Reds and Bengals games. Um, it was a fun, you know, fun job to have and they went on they went on strike in 1981 well the day they went on strike was the first day i used my season pass and there was this girl that worked on the racer i had graduated with a few weeks earlier her name was diana and um you know i was just riding the ride a few times and i asked her what was the the one day record you know and she found out that it was um 96 so i tried to get that not knowing how the lines and stuff worked and i would come back and you know a couple of days later I'd come back another couple of days well next thing you know i've got four or five hundred rides on this wow. so it went from trying to get the one day record to well maybe i get a thousand rides in before the strike ends and uh, i did you know the strike ended on august 9th and i got the ride on august 14th with my 1000th ride in 1981 so it was just a fun you know way to occupy my time you know, just having some fun. I didn't want to start and, you know, go find another job and then have to leave, you know, a week or two later because the strike ended. So I was just biding my time. Um, but it was just kind of a fun thing to do. And the next year it was like, well, maybe I can get 2,000 rides on it. Next year maybe, you know, I can get the 3,000 and 5,000. And it just kind of evolved from there. There was nothing I really planned out. 
it just kind of happened. And then from 1981 to 1990, I had uh, 10,000 rides on the, the race. I did end up breaking the one-day record twice, so I had 111 and 112 ride days on it. Um, so I did what my original idea was, you know, two along the way, but, uh, it was just something that was, you know, fun. I loved, uh, you know, uh, the amusement theme park industry, you know, I loved roller coasters. Uh, it was just a way to have fun. And I did other things when I was up into the park too, you know, I would ride the beast or I'd watch the shows and, and, uh, you know, ride all the other rides too. But it was just, a, you know, to me, it was, it, it started becoming, you know, perfect way to, to do things where I would spend, you know, my summers and the evenings and that up at uh, Kings Island. And then, you know, in the winter, you know, you're watching hockey or, you know, then start working for hockey teams. So it was just a fun, you know, combination there. Important question here, forward racer or backwards racer? I always like the forward side. I like the backwards. I, like... I don't know why, but <laughs> the backwards was unique. And I remember in 82 when the, the PR department at the park, you know, the, they called and they said, hey, we're going to be trying this experiment thing. Can you come out Thursday for this uh, media day thing? We're going to run one side of the racer backwards. Now, I had ridden, you know, on the racer in the back seat, and I turned around and, you know, watched, you know, from you know from that backwards perspective. So I had an idea what it was going to be like, and it was unique And you know, the first, you know, couple years with it. Um, but for me, the novelty, you know, had, had kind of worn off you know, three or four years into it, you know, so I always preferred the, the forward side. Um, so back in 2008, when both sides were returned to both running forward, you know, I was okay with that because I remembered growing up with it that way. So it's, it depends. I think when you talk to people, if they wrote it from 72 to 81, they like it now that it's back to what it was. But if their first introduction to the racer was uh, one side was backwards, they missed the backward side. Yeah, that I think that's why I like the backward side too. But if you think about it, two forwards, I mean, that's, hey, that's the racer, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly with that. But, no, I always had a fun time with it, and, you know, I still, you know, ride it. I don't, uh, you know, do what I did before where I'd be riding it 20, 30, 40, 50 times in one day anymore. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if I have time, you know, and, and there's friends in town and they want to take a ride on the racer, I'll still do that with them. Whatever rides did you enjoy back uh, back then? What other rides? Yes. Uh, the Beast, you know, for sure. That, uh, to me, that's, even though the racers, you know, the one I did the record on, and, and if I had to pick one ride, it's my favorite ride. Uh, the best, I would say the Beast, you know, it's the, to me, it's the best wooden roller coaster that's ever been built. Uh, nothing else like it. You know, the length of the ride, you know, the speed of the ride for a wooden roller coaster, just being out in the woods. Um, so I would ride that every day. I like the carousel. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I think that, that's kind of to me the um you know like the heartbeat of an amusement park you know is that carousel that atmosphere kind of ride uh the train you know i'm a big fan of the, of the, of the train at king's island one of the first big rides that i can remember going on you know when when king's island first opened you know was that train here's this big massive locomotive um so i think for even for a lot of little kids it's the first ride and a big ride that they go on so you know i always enjoyed the train and then there was a ride called the flying eagles uh, you know, you can kind of make your own experience on that. So I would write that a lot. Uh, but, uh, you know, there wasn't a ride that I didn't like. You know, I would write everything. And this is before Paramount came in and, you know, made right. everything yeah. paramount Yeah, this was in the 1980s. You know, from 81 to 90, I was there at least five days a week, you know, sometimes seven, just around, you know, work schedule and that, but at least five days a week, you know, and I would average over 15 rides a day on the racer and, um, 
over that 10-year period, it did average out to be like 15.2 rides a day. And that was always statistically, you know, being a sports fan, you grow up attracted to statistics. Yeah. So I, that's probably why I started keeping track was just I just wanted to see how many visits I'd make and how many rides I'd ride, you know, what my average rides per day would be on each, you know, total rides, this ride, that ride. So being statistically uh, inclined, you know, that's what motivated me to keep track of all this. If I hadn't been a big sports fan, I never would have even started keeping track. I was going to ask, um, what was the major difference when Paramount came over and they ran the park for uh, a while? Uh, what was the difference between Paramount and, you know, the previous ownership? You know, I think that they wanted to um, – it was a way to market, you know, the movies. Yeah. You know, so it became more about that than, you know, the actual park experiences. You know, the things that were iconic to Kings Island, you know, were getting – push more in the background and it was more about you know what's the next what's the next movie we can you know promote so rides are being named like top gun and you know things like that so it was just a different the atmosphere you know kind of changed a little bit it became more of that that feel you know that uh you know it was more uh, commercialized like there was face off which is by the entrance to the park there was um yeah, the face Laura, off. Laura Croft experience or something like that. Yeah, to- Tomb Raider was a ride. You know, they did a good job with it. I mean, it was all you know well done in that. But it, you know, I was used to how it was in the seventies and the eighties. You know, and then you start to switch to where it's becoming more of these these themes and that. So it it just changed a little bit. You know, for me the, you know, the atmosphere of it, but the ride experience itself was still the same. We're talking about changes from your youth in Deer Park and bouncing to Anderson Township, what's changed in the Queen City? Just the size of it. You know, I mean, I can remember when there, you know, when there wasn't a connection between, you couldn't get to Kings Island on 275, you know, from <laughs> Anderson Township. You know, so just that kind of a thing, you know, the, the Beachmont Avenue, you know, there was one lane on each side. Um, Tylersville Road, you know, up by, you know, as you get toward, you know, Mason and Kings Island was a two lane road. So I think the size of it, you know, has, has been what's, what's changed a lot that I would say just, just the growth, you know, there's all these businesses now, you know, out in Anderson township along Beachmont Avenue. And that wasn't the case before, you know, so it's become like a mini tri-county, you know, through, through Anderson township now. It really has. I think the biggest change though, and if you're a hockey fan listening to this, it's going to break your heart again. The garden's being demolished. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, that's like I said, the first hockey game I ever saw was there. I worked uh, for the different, you know, teams there. It would be a total of 14, you know, years that I that I worked at, at Cincinnati Gardens. Uh, you know, special place in my heart. Always will. Met my wife there at Cincinnati Gardens. Uh, but I, I've always believed, though, that – uh, you know, you always respect history, but you can't revere it. And sometimes, you, you know, you have to move on and, and uh, you know, things don't stay forever. It didn't it have a tenant anymore, you know, so it was tough for the ownership of the gardens to keep it going. Uh, so they didn't really have much of a choice at that point. It wasn't likely to, to be able to attract a, a tenant because what the arenas today, you know, what, what everybody's looking for, it didn't have all those amenities. So it was going to be very tough to do that or for trying to bring in, you know, different acts and things. It didn't have, you know, the kind of things that, you know, either the capacity or, you know, the dressing room setup, the sounds. I mean, it just had a lot of things that weren't there, 
you know, that were great in the, you know, the 50s, 60s and 70s and 80s. But uh, what people needed today to make it work, you know, it, it, the opportunity just wasn't there anymore. So, you know, sad, it was very sad, you know, to see it come down. But I understood it. At least they did save uh, some of the pieces. I think the, like, stone statues they had in the building, I think that went to Xavier. And I think the letters of Cincinnati Gardens went to the Sign Museum. Yeah, they did. Um, so they they did save some parts of it. I was a little surprised that you know how quickly uh, when the when the ownership changed hands that they you know locked it up and started just you know ripping things out. I thought there'd be a little more time. It would have a better kind of send off. It didn't really have a send off, you know, that it deserved. When you look at the history of it, and you know you had the Cincinnati Royals and Oscar Robertson played there, Ezra Charles, you know, was a boxer and he was there. The Beatles played there. I mean, there was just so much history that you would have thought that it would have, you know, at least deserved some kind of a, a send-off, but that, you know, and that didn't happen. So that was that was sad as well. But uh, um, I did have the distinction of being the last um, non-employee. You know, I was the last civilian that uh, was inside the gardens, and that wasn't by design. I, I went, when I heard it was being sold and, you know, it was changing hands, I went to go see some of the people that were still working there and, uh, you know, just walked around for a couple hours and then I left and then I got home and I had a, a message, uh, you know, Facebook messenger that, uh, Hey, you'll be the last person that does it. The uh, new ownership just came in and just padlocked everything, you know, we're kicked out. <laughs> you know, so I was, uh, I, I was I be considered the last person to, to walk the halls of gardens from a civilian point of view. I, I try not to get angry about things, but it's still, I don't think the actual demolition of the gardens set me off. It's just, you know, oh, well, everything's locked and we're going to bulldoze it for it. Yeah, exactly. Like I said, I, it should have had a send-off and it didn't. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the NBA's coming back Cincinnati, I mean, for a very long time, if ever. I mean, and Oscar Robertson, he was Cincinnati. I mean, and the Royals mm-hmm. were good for a good long time, too. And there was great hockey there. Um, the Mohawks played there. I think they won a couple of... Uh, um, yeah, they won five Turner Cup championships in a row. I was going to say Clark yeah, Cups, and I don't know why. I, th- I think I'm thinking the Milwaukee Clarks, but, I mean, the Mohawks were good, Swords, Stingers. I mean, all the history yeah. through that building. I mean, And the Cyclones, you know, in the early 90s when they first came to town, I mean, that became the toughest ticket in the city to get. I mean, but we, I worked for them. I was the fifth person they hired back in 1990, and I worked for them for six seasons in those first – you know, two years were really special. Midway through that first season, you know, it really took off. And all of a sudden, you know, we were selling out every night 10,000 plus. The next year, 32 home games, 26 of them, 10,000 plus, you know, standing room only. So um, I learned a lot of what I know today about, uh, you know, marketing and promotions. Uh, one of the three original Cyclones owners, his name was Ron Fuller. He had uh, been involved in the wrestling business Mm -hmm. um both as a wrestler and then later as a promoter and just that guy was a genius and just to be able to be around that for the four years he was involved with the franchise and the things that i learned from him i mean you you could work you know 30 40 years in the marketing industry and not pick up what i did just having him every day you know and i was like a sponge just absorbing all the information and and what he did worked you know we were packing packing the gardens and when he left, 
you know, the attendance started to go down. So, I mean, he, he was, you know, everyone, other people got the credit, but uh, Ron was that the promotional brains behind the Cyclones in those early years. He got the butts in the seats for the first, uh, the first version of the Cyclones. Yeah, exactly. And it was, you know, so that was one of my jobs was to uh, contact the media and, you know, throughout the week to tell them how many tickets we had left. And I would say we're down to 1500, you know, next head call, we got seven or next head call, we got 300 and I would call, game day and say we're sold out you know so that was one of my primary roles was to give the updates to the media how many tickets we had uh, left during that 1991-92 season what's besides the venue and the league what's the major differences between the cyclones back then and today cincinnati cyclones which play downtown well for the echl level number one the caliber of play you know the echl um, back then was a league nobody really wanted to, to play, and it was a place you played if you had nowhere else to go. Um, so the caliber of play, you know, much, much better. You didn't see anybody that, uh, you know, was on an NHL contract hardly in the ECHL th- those first two years. Now there are several players on ECHL teams that, uh, you know, were drafted, and the NHL team, you know, believes that they're going to play for them someday. So you definitely, you know, the, the, um, the depth is much better. You know, the... Back then, you know, your second line in the ECHL probably couldn't play in the ECHL. You know, some of them could, but, you know, just that much difference. Just the depth in the players um, are different with it. I think the the fans going to the game are a little bit more different. Um, You're seeing more families now today at the Cyclones games than you did back in the early 90s at Cincinnati Cardinals. And it was pretty much, you know, a college crowd was going to the game. Uh, back in the the early gardens days, you know, so now you're seeing a lot more, you know, more families that uh, that go to the games, and then the, obviously the venues are you know going to be different there. Uh, you can do more things at uh, you know where the Cyclones are playing right now, you know, with with just the uh, you know you got the video scoreboard, and you can do more with the you know putting on a show and more with the entertainment and those kind of things. Now, I know the Cyclones, um, they have a lot of family deals, like you mentioned, and a lot of deals to get younger kids into the sport. And recently they uh, signed a partnership with uh, NYYHA. Um, I couldn't think of the uh, letters for a minute there. But they signed a deal where the junior Cyclones are coming back for youth hockey. Uh, what were some of the promotions like for Cyclones 1.0? Well, the first version of it, I mean, we had, you know, there were the bikini nights and there were, you know, the dollar beer nights and, you know, a lot of those, you know, kind of promotions, uh, the, you know, the you know traditional ones to, you know, the puck nights and the hat nights and the t-shirt nights. Um, but the one thing that, you know, if I look back that we did not do is we would have 10,000 people, you know, it was all about entertainment with Ron Fuller and it was, and it was working. Uh, but it was uh, it was a night of entertainment. Oh, by the way, you know, there's a hockey game going on. So one of the things that we did not do those first couple of years was we did not um, it, we weren't getting enough people hooked on actually hockey. It was the night of entertainment part of it. And I think that's what today's Cyclones do very well is they do um, make that effort to, to be working you know, more with the youth hockey community and and developing hockey fans where. You know, for us back then, you know, that wasn't the priority to develop hockey fans. It was, you know, we're entertainment. You know, we'll just do whatever we can to pack the building. And I also like the Cyclones of today. They have a special hockey team, sled hockey teams, and they reach out a lot. And I think that's real Mm -hmm. as well. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, it would be nice if you took the best of both worlds and know what the Cyclones first did and you did what uh, the Cyclones are doing today. And then you'd really have, you know, something special. As someone that's seen a lot of hockey, especially in Cincinnati, Ohio, USA, what has changed from your first day with the microphone till today? I think just the, you know, what's changed from, you know, in the Cincinnati sense of it is just that, uh, you know, hockey's been around now for a lot longer time. And, you know, there's more people that have been exposed to it. Uh, there's a bit more understanding about the game. Uh, you know, one of the differences I noticed, like when I went to Albany, was on our weekly radio show, fans would call up and they'd be complaining about the power play, you know, those kind of things where that never happened, you know, when I was doing the Mighty Ducks games. Um, you know, you didn't get the actual, like, hockey question, you know, questioning the strategy or anything like that. And I did in Albany. Where I think now fans are more, you know, they're getting more into that to where they're, they're understanding, the, you know, the game better. It's now been here, you know, pretty much now every year for the past 30 years. That's a pretty good run. Uh, between the different versions of the Cyclones and the Mighty Ducks. Um, so there's been enough exposure to it. So you do have that core of a fan. I think that's one of the things that Cincinnati does not get credit for is there is that, you know, core of hockey fans. There's, there's, uh, you know, maybe 10,000. Uh, they don't go to every game, but there's that, that nice solid core that you could build from if the NHL were came here, you know, but uh, I think that's just the thing that there's, there's more, there's been more development of the, the hockey the knowledgeable hockey fan do you ever see a venue like cincinnati gardens being built in cincinnati i don't unfortunately because i think you know the times have changed to where any venues that are being built today you know it's it's all about the you know the the, the corporate you know community you know and and uh, the luxury seats, uh, the luxury suites, the club seats, you know, those kind of things where, and then the actual fans that you always see them in the upper levels, um, you know, of, of arenas, they, they don't get close to the ice anymore. So I think that's the one thing that's definitely changed, you know, over the last 30 years is, uh, you know, if there was a new venue built or whatever, it pushes and it, it works the same way, for, you know, for baseball or, you know, you know, other sports too, where the, the diehard fan you know, they get pushed higher up in the, in the, in the seating around the arena because it's all about the corporate, you know, the, the corporate sponsors and the club seats and those kind of things. Um, the inter- people that are just for an item entertainment, they're all sitting in those, those seats up close. Do you ever see something not like Cincinnati gardens, but another hockey venue being built around Cincinnati? I, I do. I do think, you know, I could see that, uh, you know, you look at the arena where the Cyclones play right now, and everybody thinks it's a young, you know, younger, you know, a young arena because it was in comparison to the gardens, which had been built, you know, 1949 when that opened. Uh, but uh, Cincinnati, uh, you know, the Cyclones arena, that's 45 years old. You know, that opened late 74, 75. Um, so it's not young. You know, so I do think that there, there, there will come a day, you know, in, in the foreseeable future where there is a new arena built and hockey will be played there. Do you see Heritage Bank Center getting uh, renovations or do you see a brand new building taking its place? You know, I mean, I think what well, I'm going to include if there's a new venue that it would be a refurbished, uh, you know, one where, where the, the Heritage Bank Center is. Um, I think the, the best option would be if you can, you know, refurbish it, you do, you know, because you, you, it's right there. You don't have to go acquire the land or anything. So I think that that would be, you know, the first thing that you'd want to do. And that's what they're doing out in Seattle with the NHL mm-hmm. uh, expansion team. They're going to get, you know, it's not a 
you know, new plot of land where they're building this arena. They're taking an old one and just, you know, kind of redoing it to, to take it up to today's standards. So I think that's that would be the the first thing that I would think it would probably would happen is it would be the current arena would be just refurbished and redone. You know, it would have downtime, you know, for about a year or so, you know, 18 months or whatever, where nothing would be going on in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that would be the that's the the least expensive route to go is to to just refurbish what you have. Now in Columbus, they have the chillers around the, the northern quadrant of the city and uh, location downtown. Um, and Indianapolis has the uh, fuel tank. I think that's what it's called. Mm-hmm. Do you ever see Cincinnati getting something like that, where they build multiple rinks for like high school hockey, youth hockey, adult hockey? Do you ever see that happening? I do see that happening. You know, what you need is you need someone to champion, and that person who wants to champion it, you know, needs to have some deep pockets. But I do somebody will emerge at some point, and that will happen. I'd love to see that happen because the chillers in Columbus are nice, especially. Oh yeah, the, they uh, are the chiller north in um, Lewis Center, where all the Olentangy High Schools play their hockey. They just put in a third rink, and they're going to redo all their lighting systems where it's much brighter and it's it's something i hope does happen in cincinnati because i right now there's two rinks that uh service high school hockey and they're both about a mile apart on 42 so and one's in an old hills department store so yeah exactly play lots of men's league games in both of those facilities um but i you know i think you know it, it i think it will happen down the road you know again you just need somebody that's gonna you know champion that kind of a thing that has you know some money or they have people that they know that have some money to uh, to get those projects going you know it always helps when you like in columbus we have an nhl team you know because there's going to be much stronger interest in hockey but uh, you know you look at indianapolis you know same level as the cyclone so um you know you say why not why can't it happen in cincinnati exactly it'd be it'd be the perfect place and if the fuel can do it in the echl i mean i think the cyclones would be able to as well but my next question is going back to your hockey broadcasting career who have been some of your favorite players and coaches and people you got to work with in that time brad shaw is a head coach Um, he was the head coach of cincinnati mighty ducks he's uh, an assistant coach with the columbus blue jackets right now and uh, i always am amazed that he does not uh, get opportunities to uh, more opportunities to interview for a head coaching job in the NHL. I think part of that is um, Brad's not a self promoter, uh, but uh, he's a phenomenal coach. Uh, one of the best people that I was around. So uh, from a coaching point, you know, there's Brad Shaw, um, Mike Babcock, um, you know, we had the situation with him, you know, with the Maple Leafs this, this past season. Um, but uh, you know, at the time I was with him in Cincinnati you know, he always treated me, you know, my family very well. So, uh, you know, Mike's, you know, up there on that list. Uh, Tom Rowe in Albany, an old school, you know, guy. He was uh, the first American to, to score more than 30 goals in a season in the NHL when he was with the Washington Capitals, you know, so so I enjoyed working with him. Uh, Dennis DeRosier was the first Cyclones head coach, uh, fun guy to be around. So those are the guys that, uh, you know, most memorable to me from the, the coaching uh, point uh, from player perspective uh, there's just you know so many of them um, there was a guy named Craig Ferguson when I was with the the Carolina Monarchs you know just a really really you know good guy you know he got it you know one of those kind of things he understood it um, Zen and Kanaka with the Cincinnati Mighty Ducks 
he stands out. Um, not the most talented guy, kind of a scrappy player. Uh, no one ever thought he'd play in the ECHL. He did. No one thought he'd be good enough to play in the American League. He did. No one thought he could play in the NHL. He did. Um, but just from a community, you know, point of view, uh, he came up to me the first day of uh, when he got assigned to Cincinnati in the 2004-05 season, and he said, um, "I want to, um, you know, be the guy that you go to for all these community appearances." You know, I'll do whatever you want. Now you hear that a lot, but a few of them, you know, stay true to that all the time. But uh, you know, he did. And one of the funny stories about Zenon is um, he was going to visit Children's Hospital, so he he was there, and you know, he took a couple players with him. And uh, I get this call in the middle of the afternoon, and it's Children's Hospital, and they say we want to talk to you about the player you sent over here today is in a canop and all I'm thinking, Oh God, what do you do? You know, did he use the wrong language? What happened here? You know, what, what, what's this about? And I said, uh, did he, was everything okay? She goes, Oh yeah, everything's okay. And she said, he was supposed to be here for an hour and a half and he's been here for four hours. She goes, the, the kids need to settle down. He's got them all wired up and everything, you know, they need to get back in their rooms. And, um, but it was just things like that, that, you know, he made an impression on me because he did it for the right reasons. You know, he understood, um, you know, that, uh, you know, why other players, you know, after practice, you know, they didn't want to do the appearances necessarily. Maybe they wanted to go to the mall, you know, or whatever. And, you know, his thing would always be, yeah, you guys go to the mall. That's not going to be there tomorrow, right? I'm going to go see these kids, you know, who might not be there tomorrow. So he was a very positive influence on a lot of players in getting them to come see what he was doing. So that made my job much easier when you have a guy like that, that, um, you know, can take other players, and kind of encourage them to do what he's doing. And but, you know, uh, we, you know, we had some other players too, you know, like, um, you know, John Sebastian Jagir, you know, he was with the Mighty Ducks when they went to the Stanley Cup final. They didn't win, but they lost in seven games to the New Jersey Devils. But uh, he's one of the players, Andy McDonald, um, Ryan Getzloff, um, you know, you had Corey Pecker that played here for a little bit. Uh, you know, he was a fun guy. Uh, Corey Perry, um, you know, there was just a lot of, you know, just so many of them that, uh, you know, came through. Joffrey Lupel, uh, Michael Holmquist was a guy with the Cincinnati Mighty Ducks. Um, you know, Dan Bilesma was a, a player his first year he came to the Cincinnati Mighty Ducks. The next year, the last year of the Ducks, he was an assistant coach. He went on to coach the Pittsburgh Penguins, led him to a Stanley Cup. He's now in Detroit as an assistant coach. You know, just a phenomenal guy to be around. Um, so there's just, I mean, I could list over 100 of them. How about some of your favorite games in your time? Favorite game, most memorable game would have been in the 2004-05 season. Um, Cincinnati Muddy Ducks rallied from a three games to one deficit against Milwaukee. And the, the Admirals had won the, the Calder Cup the year before. So it's a game seven in Milwaukee. The, the Ducks skate out to a three nothing lead. Milwaukee ties it. You know, in the second period, they always say that, you know, the three nothing leads the worst one to have in hockey. So it looks like there's going to be overtime. And uh, with 13 seconds to go in the game, Mark Popovic, you know, just flips one in from the blue line in this little, in a little wrist shot, you know, flutters toward the goal. It goes by Brian Fenley. The Ducks win the game and advance on to the next round. They eliminate Milwaukee. So that would be the most uh, memorable game that stands out to me from the Mighty Ducks era. Is there a game in that era where it sticks with you in the wrong way, like it's a heartbreaking loss for the Ducks? 
the next round against the Chicago Wolves. Um, they they lost that series in five games. And just as I'm on the broadcast, you know, talking and you're seeing the players after they do the handshakes, they're skating off the ice. You know that there's not going to be another Mighty Ducks game the next year. You know, there is no next season after the Cincinnati Mighty Ducks. Yeah, I, that had to be heartbreaking. It was, it was, you know, at the time. And, um, you know, you're hopeful that another team's going to, you know, they're going to land another NHL affiliation and you're going to be able to keep it going. But it was just a special group in the 2004-05 season. And, uh, you know, just to watch it, you know, you're so emotionally involved, you know, when you're the broadcaster and you're working for the team and you're there from day one with the organization uh, just to see that, uh, you know, it's over. You know, just like that, it's over as the guys were skating on. And I can still picture them you know, all going down the line and, you know, just skating off. And uh, I remember, you know, Curtis Glencross scored the last Mighty Ducks goal was a shorthanded goal in that game. Uh, so that, that stands out. I think, you know, going back to the Cyclones, here's the, the first ever game uh, back in 1990. It was against the Roanoke Valley Rebels. Mm-hmm. And that stood out to me because um, I never thought I'd see a pro hockey game, you know, after the Swords left at Cincinnati Gardens again. So to see that come back around and be a part of it, um, you know, that that was a special feeling too. Personally for me, I have a story similar to that. It was the Dayton Demons because uh, I was their play-by-play voice for three years. The third year, uh, we fell in the semifinal game in the best of three to the Danville Dashers. And I just have this feeling that we're not going to have Demons hockey next year. Uh, it wasn't official quite yet. I mean, there was rumors saying the owner's going to pack him up and move him to Port Huron, Michigan, which he did. But I just remember seeing that last game-winning goal with about 40-some seconds left, and I just start thinking, we're not going to have Demons hockey next year, and, you know, all those guys aren't going to be, you know, in Dayton. I mean, we got a team for one more year at Hera, and then they folded, Hera closed up, then that big tornado hit about a year ago. So, yeah, that's that's not fun when you know that uh, there's not hockey next year. No, and then I had another situation with the Cyclones. You know, like I said, I had been one of the first people that were hired in 1990, and then in the 95-96 season, you know, as they got ready to start the playoffs, an opportunity came up with the Carolina Monarchs, and the Florida Panthers had – been with the Cincinnati Cyclones as the NHL affiliate for you know a couple years, but they had moved on to the American Hockey League in Greensboro. A number of the players had gone there. Uh, the head coach was Rich Crom, who'd been an assistant with Cincinnati. Chuck Fletcher was the assistant GM in Florida. Got to know him real well during you know the Cyclones years. Uh, Brian Murray was the GM, um, so I was kind of excited about that opportunity. And you know I had an interview set up, but they said we'll wait till you get done with the playoffs. So we. Cyclones beat Kalamazoo, and then they beat them in the next round. Now they're in the conference final. So this goes from the beginning of April. We'll, we'll talk to you, you know. So we're into the, um, you know, the series with uh, Orlando, and uh, Cyclones lost Game Seven. And after that game, you know, I just kind of sat, you know, after everything was done with the post-game interviews and that, I just went and I sat in the seat, you know, that I had watched my first ever hockey game there you know, at the gardens and, and, uh, you know, section 20 and, um, just kind of sat there for like, you know, 20, 30 minutes because I'm thinking, okay, if I interview and get this job, it's the last time I'm going to see a game here, maybe, you know, so, um, that was a different, you know, perspective too with it. And, but I didn't know if they were going to wait for me. I thought, you know, 
whatever, two months later, they probably filled the job. But the next morning, I'm in my office, and Brian McKenna, who became the ECHL commissioner um, later on, was the general manager of the Carolina Monarchs. And he calls me and says, sorry about your loss last night. Can we get you on a flight here tomorrow, you know, to come out and talk to us? So, um, but that was another one of those memories, you know, just the end for me with the Cyclones because I had six wonderful years there. And uh, knowing that, um, you know, it was time to move on, you know, to try something. I wanted to try the American Hockey League. Um, so it was uh, it, it was kind of one of those memories for me that I remember more about that those last you know couple of playoff games that series and then that final game you know than I do a lot of the the six years with the team. Counting hockey, what's some of your favorite things about sports in Cincinnati? I think you know for me uh, I like the some of it's like for the Reds it's the tradition you know the, you know baseball's first team um, the memories you know, that I had watching the big red machine in the seventies. Um, but, uh, you know, big Bengal fan, you know, so I've been, been going to their games for years. And, uh, so it, it's just, you know, as a, you know, Cincinnati sports fan, I think it's just, you know, just growing up supporting the teams, um, and just having that become a big part of your life. You know, it, it was, for me, it's, it's not, it's not very deep. It's uh, been always, uh, baseball football hockey and amusement parks you know there's not too much more you know depth to me than that so uh for me that's what it's always kind of meant you know from the Cincinnati sports scene is just how woven into my life you know the fabric of my life that these things are another thing that i don't think i'll be able to interview um, anyone else and ask about this you have your very own day You talking about the Kings Island Day? Yes, Don Helbig Day. Yeah, that was I think back in two thousand four. It was my one thousandth visit as a season pass holder to Kings Island. You know that I had uh, done the, the the roller coaster thing in the eighties, and then I was approaching the the one thousand visits. The marketing department, you know, became aware of that and said, you know, kind of hold off. We want to kind of make a little you know, special deal out of this. Um, so can you do it on this day? It was July 22nd, you know, so can you, can you, you know, hold off on visiting, you know, as frequently as you do, you know, so we can time it out and do it that day. So I got there that morning, you know, they had the big red carpet out and everything that, uh, you know, uh, that I walked down with my wife and daughter and, uh, you know, they, they gave us a bunch of, you know, little gifts and things, but, uh, that was kind of fun, you know, totally unexpected. It just, it was one of those things that happened. You know, if you go somewhere a lot, you're going to have numbers on something, right? So it was, uh, it was one of those things that, uh, you know, it was kind of neat. And then, you know, two and a half years later, you know, I'm there, you know, working as the, the PR person for the park. Staying with Kings Island, can you ever picture like a sports exhibition ever happening at Kings Island? Like something... I don't know, like an exhibition in any sport? Um, you know, that's possible to have those kind of things. We've had some things close to that. Uh, we had Robbie Knievel did a, a motorcycle jump, uh, set a world record back in 2008. That was one of my first big projects that I worked on there. Uh, we had Nick Walenda did a high wire walk from the front uh, of the park where the international restaurant is over that, over the fountains, uh, to the top of the uh, Eiffel Towers. He was walking on this wire that's no wider than a nickel, um, you know, 260 feet above the ground. A little nerve-wracking, you know, as you're watching that and you're the PR person for the park knowing if something happens, you know, how many calls you're going to get, right? So uh, yeah. that's always that's always a little uh, nerve-wracking. But 
um, those are kind of, you know, things like close to the sports, you know, type things we've had. We've had some of the gaming, um, you know, the gamers have come out and have, have had their own, you know, event there. So there's been different things like that. But, uh, yeah, I think there's an opportunity down the road to, you know, to maybe do some kind of, you know, sports events and things there. Uh, now, if you go up to Sandusky uh, with Cedar Point, they've now built a sports complex up there. So they have all kinds of, uh, you know, there's baseball tournaments, softball tournaments, basketball tournaments, you know, so they've, they've got a, a great setup. And, uh, you know, anytime anybody that, you know, that's listening to this podcast, if you're up in that Sandusky area, you know, check out the, the sports center that uh, has been built up there by Cedar Point. You know, it, it's fantastic. I don't know that there's a better facility anywhere that someone's going to find for you, you sports. You know, you can talk about, you know, what's down at, uh, you know, Disney you know, when they have all their tournaments and things down there at the, the sports complex down there. But this is, you know, you know, first class, you know, I, I think it's just a phenomenal uh, facility and it's only been open for a little over a year now. I think that'd be pretty huge at Kings Island. I mean, so it would already, be. Yes. There's already great sports in Southwest Ohio and you have, I mean, you got that tennis venue that's home to the state uh, mm-hmm. championships uh, fall and spring. I mean, I, I think it'd work in Kings Island. Yeah, I mean, it'd be great to have all those things. You look at it now, when Kings Island opened in the 70s, uh, the golf course across the street was owned by Kings Island. The tennis facility owned by Kings Island. They had their own campground. They had their own hotel. Uh, You know, so it was a complete, you know, both sides of the street, you know, was all, you know, owned by Kings Island. And as years went on, you know, the Paramount Group and that, you know, sold a lot of that off. Uh, but um, but yeah, it would be nice to to have a lot of those these different things happening. And uh, you know, if you had a, a place where the sports teams could play in that, you know that the, the kids are certainly going to want to go, you know, spend some time at Kings Island either before their game or after their game. Don, how has this coronavirus affected your jobs? Well, been working at home, you know, since the um, you know late March. Um, with it, I'm still able to do a lot of the things that I would have done in the office. It's just a different way of doing it. Uh, but now we're in that point to where the season, you know, we would have been open. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we're no different than, you know, what the Reds, you know, are going through, you know, all the baseball fans and, um, you know, it's, it's tough for everybody. You know, it's a, it's, you know, throughout the country, everybody's going through it and uh, there's no playbook for this and there's no playbook. So, uh, you know, you, it changes day by day. You know, there's there's no way you can come out and say this is when, you know, you're going to open or anything like that because you don't know um, with that. So just a lot of unknowns. I think that's been the biggest the biggest thing is just all the unknowns. Uh, but, you know, you still proceed and, and try to go about it, you know, the best you can. And one of the things that, you know, I've been doing like with the Kings Island blog is there's a lot of, uh, you know, just keeping people entertained with virtual rides and uh, park history. You know, so we've been able to keep our, our audience engaged, uh, you know, with that. But, um, you know, you certainly wish it was different. Uh, but the reality of the situation is it's not. Um, so you just adapt and, and, you know, try to take it the best you can day by day. And then there will come a point, uh, you know, the park will open again and everybody will get back to having fun. And, um, you know, there'll be that new normal, you know, for a little while. And then, you know, eventually it all comes back. And then, you know, hopefully everything comes back stronger than ever. I'm hoping, but I will um, make a comment about what Kings Island did for season ticket holders. Uh, free season tickets for 2021 if you already have your 2020 uh, pass in. So I think that was really nice. 
the Kings are to do. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, a nice gesture. I think, you know, when it first started, nobody knew how long it would, you know, go. We knew for sure, you know, that it was, you know, that first couple weekends. But as you get into, you know, the end of April and there's still no sign of anything, um, you know, it's the right thing to do. You know, is to, is to give your, you know, your, your pass holders, you know, a lot of them have been pass holders, you know, 10, 15, 20, you know, 30 years, you know, some of them. So it's it's the right way to, um, you know, reward them for their loyalty, you know, during this difficult time. Don, you mentioned uh, a lot of hockey. And you also mentioned there was an indoor football team in Albany when you were with the yeah, they ran a football, River, yeah. the uh, River Rats. Uh, is there any other sport that you want to try broadcasting before you hang up the set <laughs> you know no I think you know baseball would have been fun you know I would I would have liked to have done baseball um, that would that would have been um, that third sport so growing up it was either you know hockey was the priority and then baseball would have been second and then you know football would have been the third one to broadcast so never got the chance to do baseball uh, but you know I can't complain when I look back on it you know when when you know I'm 19 years old and I'm thinking I want to either you know be a broadcaster i want to work in the amusement theme park industry you know a few years later when i discovered that part of it um you know i I got to do do both and so i I can't complain i don't i you know i can say without hesitation you know over the last 30 years no one's had more fun than i have for those uh, folks that are listening if they want to be in the pr field or the broadcasting field what advice can you give well, I think if you want to do the PR thing, that I, I would, you know, it's kind of changed. It's evolved on on how you know PR is done nowadays. You know, there's not really the need to do press releases. You can do so much of that now through social media. You don't have to bag the media. Mm-hmm. Um, you can become the media yourself. You know, with with uh, you know the days of the Dayton Daily News and the, the Inquirer. You know, the, that used to be the printing press. The printing press today is Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter. It's your own blogs. You know, using your 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 uh, own website, driving traffic there. So I would say if you if you're trying to to get into PR, you know, focus on the the digital side of it. You know, learn as much as you can about the the social media piece of it, um, because that's now kind of where a lot of that communication is going out. So so really become as well versed as you can, and all those different platforms, and also you know learn how to you know do things with you know a blog and you know what you're trying to do with that in terms of becoming the media yourself. If you want to be a broadcaster. You know, you just have to, it's a, it's a tough, tough, um, you know, industry to get into. Uh, but if you stay with it, you know, that's the key part. You know, you just got to stick with it that, uh, you know, it can't happen for you. You know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, you'll see a lot of broadcasters that are pretty well known today. You know, they spent 10, 15 years, you know, really trying to break in before they finally do. Um, the Reds new broadcaster this year that's replacing Marty Brenneman, uh, Tommy Thrall. You know, he spent a long time, you know, in the in the single A, double A level before he ever got the shot, you know, to start doing some Reds games. So you just gotta stick with it, you know, if you want to be a broadcaster and try to broadcast as many things as you can. You know, don't turn down any opportunities. You know, if there's an opportunity to do some high school sports, do it. If there's an opportunity to do um you know, some college sports do it. You know, that's the thing. You just need that repetition to, to be calling games. You know, at the end of the day, it doesn't if it's a high school game, a college game, or the NFL, it's still football, right? Or it's still baseball. Exactly. Uh, you know, so you're still calling the same game. It's just at different levels. Now, the next two questions I have for you are based on here's unlimited money. Uh, we'll stick with the sports side first. If I gave you 
all the money in the world to build a hockey rink in Cincinnati. Where exactly are you building this? What do you have uh, included and why? <laughs> where am I going to build it? That's a, that is a phenomenal question. Um, with that, I would think for Cincinnati, I would go somewhere down, you know, what they were looking to do before with the Reds, you know, down Broadway Commons area. There was some space down there, you know, uh, where you have like Mount Adams in the background, you know, in that area. Um, I would do it down there for for an arena to put it there in Cincinnati. Okay. And I think I would I would want it to have I would want it to be, uh, you know, I would I would some of the best take the best from some of the you know the the NHL arenas out there today, you know Nashville. I'd go to Columbus. You know, I'd look and see, you know, the Florida Panthers have a tremendous arena, you know, so go to those places and just pull the best elements from those and put it into your design. Now, I give you the same amount of money for your very own ride at Kings Island. It could be roller coaster. It could be anything. What are you building and why? I I think, you know, we've... uh, you know, we're going to be able to debut that right here sooner, you know, soon uh, with the new Orion roller coaster. I think that's that's what I would do, you know, with, with that kind of a ride. I think it's something that uh, it's, you know, it's got the height where you're going to drop 300 feet. It's got the speed 91 miles an hour. It's got the length over 5,100 feet. Uh, it's got lots of, uh, you know, hills. It's So something like that is what I would do. I think my big thing is, um, you know, I, I'm big on rides that are repeatable. So the more, the bigger and the more intense you make it, uh, the less people they're going to want to ride it repeatedly. You know, you want somebody that gets off the ride, they want to get back in line and ride it again. So I think, you know, anyone that would go to Kings Island when it does open and they ride Orion, that's the kind of ride that I would build. I think I said this uh, before we started the interview, but Chick Lugwood says hi, and he also wants to ride the Orion with you. We'll make that happen for Chick. You know, we'll make that happen. He also wants to be the voice of the uh, haunted house too. But I mean, <laughs> he would be phenomenal with that. He really would. You know, uh, uh, you know, Chick's a great guy. I got to know him. You know, uh, when he was covering the Bengals mm-hmm. uh, for the Dayton Daily News, and uh, I always appreciated him. And uh, you know, I would be in the the post game press conference, and he'd ask the questions that a lot of you know others might not ask. He wasn't afraid, you know, to ask the harder questions. Although, if you do need a second voice for the Haunted Hotel, you know, I, I can do a good spooky one. Let's yeah, you could you could fit right in with that, yeah. <laughs> now, how can people follow your work and you on social media? Well, if they want to follow me, the best way to do it would be Twitter. And it's uh, just, uh, you know, simply Don Helbig. You know, Don, D-O-N, and then H-E-L-B-I-G at Twitter.com. That would be the best way to follow me on um, social media. I'm also on Instagram. Uh, I don't do a lot of the crazy things, you know, not doing TikTok or anything like that where I'm going to entertain <laughs> people that way. Uh, and then the other way to follow me is go to the Kings Island blog. Um, I usually put out four or five different blogs a week, um, try to cover the park as as the media would. So if you go to the Kings Island website at visitkingsisland.com, uh, just check out the blog. And uh, you can also see my, my Twitter address right there, too, as well. But, um, yeah, those are the those are the best ways to follow me. Don, I really appreciate the time you've given me today, and you know, I miss working with you with the uh, hockey team. But 
Oh, yeah, that was a fun time. Yeah, you know, it was a fun time, and it really was. I mean, for me, it was an opportunity. I had done games for eight or nine, ten years, and you know, had a chance to come back and do some Thunder games, and it was a way to stay in touch with hockey, um, but also get to meet uh, you know other other really good people, such as yourself. I mean, it's something I didn't really get to touch up on uh, during this interview. Uh, just the Thunder, just how much the sport itself is the same, but how different is juniors from the pros? When I first started to do the games, it was tough because the, um, you know, the speed of the game was a lot, you know, not as fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the the plays, you know, you didn't have the, you know, the, the crisp passes. You know, it was the caliber of play really did. I mean, I'll say that it did surprise me, um, you know, and it was, it was uh, you know, better than I thought it would. But it took a little bit of time to get used to, um, you know, because when you're doing the American League and that, you can kind of, um, read the play what's going to happen and you know and from watching practices and stuff you know what the guys are going to look to do the tendencies you, you know you, you you do you know 80 games a year you know especially your own team you know what these guys tend to do in every situation and that helps you you know call the game because you can you know you can forecast what's about to happen here and you, that you stay on top of the play that way so it took a little bit of time to get to know uh, the different players on the thunder and what their tendencies were but once that came about uh, you know, then it was a lot easier to call the games, but it was just a different, um, you know, it was an adjustment to go from, you know, the, the speed of the game, you know, to, to, and then just some of the, you know, there was a lot of, um, you know, I'll call it like ping pong, you know, a lot of, you know, just throwing it from each other's blue line back and forth a little bit stuff. So it was a little bit of that to, to get used to. And then you just learn, you know, I learned that, uh, you know, not to try to catch every little, you know, thing that was happening. So it would sound a little bit better coming out. Uh, to the audience, you know, so I wasn't, it wasn't um, as much, you know, different possession of the puck, you know, as, as you had at, at that level. And that was a lot of fun too, because the thunder was pretty good. And that was, uh, that was they were tough, coming on. That was yeah. They tough, were coming on. That was a tough uh, conference too. I mean, you had the Peoria Mustangs. They were really good. Uh, you had the St. Louis junior blues, which would have been the team to beat. Uh, Nashville junior predators had a team. I think they were in the same conference. Yeah, Nashville. Yeah, the, and the and the Nashville Junior Predators. One of their coaches was Chris Mason, who had played for the Cincinnati Mighty Ducks, and then had gone on to play, you know, about nine, ten years in the National Hockey League. With with Nashville being one of the teams he played for, so it was fun to to catch up with him again too. Uh, David Carpa, he was coaching the Peoria team, yeah. so and he played for the Cincinnati Cyclones when I was there. So uh, there were. Uh, you know, some familiar faces in the league, some, you know, recognizable coaches, uh, but it was a good league. And, uh, you know, the Thunder, they were at that disadvantage because they got the later start in some of these other programs, but uh, they were coming on and they were pretty competitive that uh, last year they played at the gardens and then they moved up to, um, you know, the place up in Dayton. Yeah. And that's, um, that's how we got to work together too. So it was a lot of fun watching them. Uh, they had, some really good players. Uh, Jake Ustorf, I think, is a name I remember. Yep. You know, another adjustment was when we went up to Dayton was not having that, uh, you know, that sideline view, but having it from the end zone, trying to call the game that way. Yeah. Because you're used to saying in the far corner, near corner, that kind of thing. And then now all of a sudden you're like, well, it's left corner, right corner. <laughs> yeah, right corner. Yeah. yeah. yeah so I had, it was a different terminology to try to throw in there for a little bit, you know, doing it from that angle. And when it was at the other end, you couldn't always see when a goal was scored, you know, as well. You know, or if there was a scramble or something, you couldn't really tell who was getting it from the far end. So it was a little bit more guesswork, you know, at that point, too. So that was an adjustment. But it was also good because I'd never had to do it that way. So it was fun to, to, um, 
you know, call the game from, you know, a different, uh, different perspective. You know, it was just totally new experience. So that was all right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little tough, like you mentioned, if it's happening on the far end, you know, and there's a lot of bodies, you know, it's tough to see. And I, I deal with that for high school hockey up at South Metro. But at the same time, it gives you uh, it gives you more of an advantage because you know you see it. Not quite 360, but you have more ways to catch it type of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I do miss calling, you know, games. And, I, you know, I, was, I look forward to, you know, the Thunder games. I think I did, what, like, whatever it was, 15 games. And, you know, you would do 15 games. But, um, you know, it was it was a way to stay in touch with hockey. And, uh, you know, they had a they had a nice group of people that uh, were involved with that organization. Uh, I know Ryan, the head coach, Ryan Colville, he's now, you know, Calgary in the Western Hockey League as an assistant coach. Dwayne Sutter, former New York Islander, you know, he's the the head coach of that team. So, uh, you know, he's he's moved on and having some, you know, some good success coaching in the Western Hockey League, you know, and that's going to help him. And eventually, you know, he'll get to, to be coaching a junior A team in that league at some point, you would think. Do you follow uh, high school hockey in the area? A little bit. You know, I, I see it pop up sometimes, you know, from different people involved with it and, in, you know, in my uh, social feeds and that. But, uh, you know, as far as going to games and that, I haven't really had much of an opportunity to get out and watch any. I mean, there's there's some really good high school teams too. I mean, Moeller is probably one of the better ones. St. X is up there. Elder, they were really good when I started calling high school hockey, uh, which uh, thanks to the Thunder, that's how I got in with Centerville and Springboro. So that was, yeah, that was really, I would see it. Yeah. I would see high school games, you know, when I was working for the Cincinnati Mighty Ducks, because they would have on Saturdays, you know, you, you would see the high school teams, or on Sundays, you know, at the gardens, they'd be playing before the Mighty Ducks games or after the Mighty Ducks games. So I was able to watch, you know, the Molars and the and the Sycamores and uh, Elders and that there, and they would have practices there. So I would see that, you know, in the late afternoons every day. Um, but that, you know, once the Mighty Ducks left, you know, I wasn't uh, around it. You know, I didn't have that access, you know, to it that I, you know, today that I had back then. I understand. And, and I think my big uh, worry about, the gardens closing was what's going to happen to all the high school teams. And luckily uh, they all found homes with Northland or uh, sports plus. So luckily, yeah, but there definitely needs to be those arenas that we talked about earlier in the podcast here. There definitely needs to be more ice. If anyone's listening and has deep pockets, start building rinks. Cause that'd be great. And, and build rinks with like the, do you know, I don't know if you're going to know what I'm talking about, but the desk at the USA rink at sports plus it's like the mm-hmm. broadcast desk. That's yep. awesome. It's got like the fastest internet you can ever imagine. It's just streaming there. It's just beautiful. Now on the other side, the Canadian side, they don't have a desk, but which is fine. But you set up between one of the benches and Sinbin. They put uh, one of those stickers on. It's like, this is how you protect your uh, neutral zone. It's like, why would you put it on the glass? That's how I see the game from there. <laughs> oh, that, yeah. was, that was not fun. I had to lean over the glass with the camera and everything. Luckily, I didn't get struck. But, yeah, but uh, the, the 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 good thing though is, I mean, you, you're still calling games, and that's what matters. Yeah, and and I, I'm very thankful for that. And it seems like people really do appreciate, you know, someone covering ice hockey. So, you know, if you ever if you ever catch a high school game, and you know, it's Centerville playing, you know, look me up because I'll probably be there. Definitely do that. Don, thank you so much for your time today. And that concludes episode 149 of the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast. Up next, the milestone 
150. Hey folks, just a couple things to talk about before we wrap up episode 149. As you heard, close out the interview. The 150th episode is next, and I'm really excited for it. I do have a plan for it. Hopefully I get an interview done. That's very near and dear to the podcast. If not, I do have another topic in mind, so no worries there. What I like for you, the listener, is some interactions. Uh, any special questions for Malwan's mailbag? They could be sports-related. They could be local area-related. I'll answer anything for Malin's mailbag in episode 150. And a little bit of a celebration of this podcast, because I am really proud of what I've done the past few weeks all the interviews and everything. I'm really proud of them. And I hope that you've enjoyed listening to them. Again, episode 150, that will be coming up next. And again, I do have a topic one way or another. So send in questions for Malin's mailbag, suggestions on celebrations, but episode 150 will be next. This has been episode 149, and this is Lee W. Malin signing off for this episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast with Lee W. Mowen. To subscribe to the podcast, please visit the leewmowen.com slash podcast. From there, you can choose your favorite platform, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, and many more. Interact with the podcast and host on Twitter at the Lee W. Mowen and at Sunday Pod. Like the Facebook page, the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast, and download the free Flick Chat app. Then search for the local Sunday Sports Group to submit your future Mowen's Mailbag questions. The closing theme is Lights Go Down by Dan Hennig, provided by the YouTube Music Library Collection. This is Lee W. Mowen, and I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please join me again next week on the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast.